This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Tulsi Gabbard is auditioning for Fox News. What a great show we have today. First, we're going to be joined by Congressman Eric Swalwell, and he's going to tell us all about how the Democrats win the midterms, as well as if Donald Trump will go to jail. Then we're going to talk to Hillsborough County, Florida State Attorney Andrew Warren, about his recent dust-up that got him suspended during one of Governor DeSantis's culture wars. But first, we have the hosts of MKT Call, On The Tape Podcast, OK Computer Podcast, and a contributor to CNBC Fast Money, Dan Nathan. Welcome to Fast Politics, Dan Nathan. Molly John Fast, I mean, come on. Murderers, <laughs> murderers row of, of, of guests over the last couple of weeks in your new podcast here, and, and I make the cut. I really feel very, very special here. Well, I was saying we have to have Dan Nathan on because I was like, what the hell is going on? I, it was like every day when I was watching the, the public markets crater, yeah. and also there's so many stories about the economy going on right now, and many of them conflict with each other. Can you start by giving us like a quick top line of what you're seeing? Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think you and I have talked about this in the past before. I think a lot of the things that kind of people think about as it relates to the economy and as it relates to their investments in the stock market are right. two very different things. And they're obviously very tied to each other, right? But I think over the last couple of years, I think all of us got very familiar with economic sort of issues, right? As it related right. to the pandemic and all the stimulus that kept the economy afloat. And what did that do? It, it kind of inflated the price of assets, right? Because interest rates went really low and money was really easy. And, you know, anything that wasn't bolted down as far as that was investable went up. Well, here right. we are. We're on the other side of that right now. And, you know, inflation is something that the Fed was really trying to get higher pre-pandemic. They wanted to get it above 2%. They were really worried about the idea that technology is this massive deflationary force, right? And then after the pandemic, after trillions of dollars of monetary and fiscal stimulus, I mean, just things went haywire and prices and all sorts of goods and services just went a lot higher. And then when we had the war in Ukraine, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it caused tremendous dislocation as far as energy supplies. And then on top of all these kind of broken supply chain issues that we had from the pandemic. And then obviously, you know, two and a half years into the pandemic, you know, China's still locking down. So inflation, 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 this is the thing that our central bank about a year ago decided they have to combat because it got to high single digit percentages. And those are levels we have not seen since the early 80s. Now, tying it into the stock market. Well, the stock market had a huge run. I want to stop you for one second. Yeah. Uh, inflation. So we're seeing inflation going up and that's caused by the money from the stimulus, the increase in gas prices yeah. and the f increase in wheat prices from the Russia invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. It, but more importantly, here in the U.S., you know, some of the issues that we had when we started thinking as 
energy as a point of national security or supply chains as a right. point of natural security. The whole idea of deglobalization is going to put upward pressure on wages here in the U.S. as we reshore a lot of jobs. So that's also part of it. And when you think about, you know, we, we, you and I have talked about this, this huge gap, right, between, you know, those who have and those, you know, on the bottom side of the spectrum, this, this income inequality gap has just been widening and widening and does it in periods of, um, you know, easy money or so. And so all of a sudden, though, we have low end workers, okay, who are getting increases in wages and they're really not keeping up with inflation right now. But that is actually a real, um, pressure point for a lot of U.S. corporations right now because they've actually had the benefit of really cheap overseas labor or overseas or, or labor here in the U.S. that's been really benefited by immigration. And we also have a huge immigration problem. So what you're saying there, I just want to like slow it down and tell and for our, for our listeners is that Actually, this inflation ended up pushing up the wages of the sort of the kind of like working people wages. And so that actually was good, but it also made inflation worse. It, it made inflation worse. And it also doesn't really do a lot for those low end workers who are now dealing with gas at the pump that's near $4, right? right? It's right. one thing to get a $2 or a $3 an hour raise. But if on average, the cost to get to your job has increased dramatically, the cost of food has increased right. dramatically. I mean, these are sorts of things that are just kind of maybe balancing themselves out. So, you know, again, I think when you think about what the Federal Reserve is trying to do by raising interest rates as fast as they have over the last six months or so, which is just, you know, the fastest in which they've raised three percentage points on the Fed funds since the early 80s, okay, they're trying to kind of tamp down these prices and get them back into the mid single digits as far as inflationary readings right now. And but they also need to do uh, really sadly, one of the big I guess goals of this whole process is to actually have that unemployment rate go up a bit because the only way to kind of tamp down demand is actually have higher unemployment. So this is the, actually the real conundrum with this whole situation. Right, because that makes labor cheaper if you have more unemployed people. Yes, and and so, I mean, basically employers have more leverage, right. which is one of the reasons why, you know, we, we know that we've had so many issues as far as low income wage earners over the last couple of decades because they just have had actually no leverage. Right. So now what happens? Well, I think there is a scenario. I mean, right now, if you think about what's happened, you know, the Fed has raised interest rates. We've seen a lot of these inflationary inputs. They've come down over the last few months, you know, while gas at the pump is still four dollars. It's still down from where it was. The national average, I think, was above five. You know, we're seeing lumber. We're seeing some food prices. We're seeing shipping costs. All these things are coming down. So now the real question is, is this tight monetary policy going to put the U.S. economy in a recession? And that's really one of the biggest kind of issues of debate right now. And it's one of the reasons why the stock market is down about 25 percent on the year, because I think a lot of investors are worried. Are anxious. Yes. Well, they're anxious because inflation for some businesses is good. For others, it's not. And if we just reach kind of a peak margin period where companies were making the highest amount of money on the revenue that they were taking in. Now, all of a sudden that some of these areas of inflation are going to be sticky, like wages and some of these other things, you know, they're not going to be able to make the profits that they did. And if profits are less, okay, stock valuations should be lower. Right. And that's what's happened in the stock market this year. Can you explain to us what businesses do well in an inflation? Well, it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, when you think about um, companies that for the most part who have pricing power, Right. So when you think about, um, you know, a company who has the ability to push through the cost of higher uh, inflation to their customers, whether they be consumers or whether they, they be enterprises, and there's no shortage of, but for the most part, most companies do, don't do well in them. If you think of like the auto industry, remember we heard coming out of the pandemic that there was just such short supply of new cars, which is one of the reasons why used right. car prices were going through the roof. In some instances, you saw used car prices more than new cars because you didn't have um, access to new cars. They didn't have the parts. They didn't have the supply chain. Right. 
Right. That was the chips, right? Right. Because of chips and everything like that. Now we've gone to a situation where there's big inventories of a lot of these things that a lot of consumers were pining away for. But now that we have, you know, a weaker economy, you know, there's probably less demand for some of these products. And so I guess the point I would just make is that the stock market's rolled over 25%. The housing market was something that the Fed was also targeting. That's much softer right now. Because of the raised interest rates, because money's more expensive. Exactly. We see the 30-year mortgage above 7% for the first time in a very long time. If you just do the math, that's more than double from over a year ago. And if you think about, if you're going to like think about buying a new home right now, think about what the differential is year over year and the cost to do that. It's much higher, even though the, the cost of homes are down. And that's also happening at times causing it's causing rents to go higher, right? So a large part of Americans, they rent their homes, right? And so right. because of the scarcity of rental properties, so that's also, you know, kind of a byproduct of this inflation too. Just back to home prices for a minute. Lower home prices may actually ultimately be good, right? Because there were so many people who were priced out of these housing markets. Yeah, th- there will be. I mean, there's been this big demographic shift and we saw it really take hold during the pandemic where younger people were interested in moving out of big cities and moving right. um, into suburban areas and buying homes. And the fact of the matter is we just don't have enough supply for them. So net net, even as the prices come in, there's going to be this weird supply demand dynamic that's going to kind of linger for a while. And that is actually one of the kind of knock on effects from the financial crisis, which was rooted in the housing market. We just don't have enough homes for the sort of demand that we're going to see outside the major cities. So there's just a lot of things right here. You know, Molly, I've been looking at the markets for 25 years, and I will tell you that the sort of cross currents or the headwinds to economic growth have really never been higher right Right now, that being said, you know, we are coming off all time highs in the stock market, all time highs in the housing market, all time highs in certain wages as you kind of read them. So, you know, consumer balance sheets for now are in pretty good shape, you know, coming out of the pandemic. So it doesn't feel like we're about to go into a major crisis like we had in 08 or 09 or something even back to, you know, 0001, 02. But I think the writing's on the wall where it could happen. We just don't kind of know right now. But you also don't know you're in a recession until you're already in it. Yeah. And I guess there's a couple ways to think about what a recession looks like. The technical definition was two consecutive negative quarters of gross domestic product. And so to most people listening to that, that doesn't mean anything, right? It just means kind of like two consecutive quarters of slower growth. What really happens, most people, most consumers feel like they're in a recession when they lose their jobs or there's downward pressure um, on their wages. And then when the cost of doing things like we just talked about, whether it be buying a home, renting a home, filling your, your, your car with a tank of gas, you know, when, when that becomes difficult, putting food on your table, that's when people feel like they're in a recession. Now, I look at this through the lens of the stock market, and most of the time, the stock market will discount a recession coming. And so that's what it's starting to do right now. And really, once you have all of these people who are just perma bullish, whether it be on the economy or the markets, when they kind of throw in the towel and say, I was wrong and we're going to have a recession and they get really negative, that's usually when stock markets bottom. Right. So you think the stock market is sometimes an indicator? Stock market is this kind of discounting mechanism right now. So if I think back to the last two times, not including the early 2020 recession and bear market that we had during the pandemic, because again, let's just exclude that because all the unusual activity. And when you think about how much stimulus, both monetary and fiscal is thrown out, but go back to the financial crisis, the S&P 500, which is the major measure of stocks here in the US, that declined 57% from its highs in 2007 in November to its lows in early uh, March 2009. And then if you go back to the post.com crisis that we had there, and it wasn't really a crisis, it was a recession, and there was a whole host of other things with 9-11, and there was a lot of corporate malfeasance, the S&P 500 sold off 50%. So here we are right now, we're down 25%. It seems very likely that the US will be a recession at some point in the next, I don't know, six to nine to 12 months or so. Europe is probably already in a recession. China's been in a recession. So I guess the point is, is like, if the average stock market decline during a recession has been about 35% over the last, call it 50 years or so, and the last two major ones, we've been down more than 50%, I'd say down 25% with a very high likelihood 
of a recession in the next year, okay? It's not that uh, The bad. stock market's not done going down, is, is the point. I think. Oh, you see inflation in Europe, in England, it seems like it's probably the worst of anywhere in the world. Political people on the right are very mad at Biden about inflation. Say Biden wasn't, he just had one focus, was it, which was inflation. What could he do that he's not doing? Well, I'll just say this. I mean, they actually have been very proactive. So going back to November of 2021, you know, when oil prices started to go up precipitously. And again, this is before Russia invaded Ukraine. They tapped what they call the SPR, the the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And that's a reserve that the U.S. has um, for a whole host of reasons of, of, of gas or oil that they stockpiled. They did that in an effort to kind of put some downward pressure on gas prices. You know, he did something very controversial earlier this year, I guess in the summer, he went over to see MBS in Saudi Arabia. Right. What did he do? He fist bumped and he got kind of spit in the eye afterwards. And I think they recognized that was a huge mistake for a whole host of reasons. Um, and then obviously the Inflation Reduction Act, that's something that they worked very hard to do, very debatable whether it actually anytime soon will actually reduce inflation. But I guess the point is they're being very proactive. When I think about what the messaging might be into the midterms, okay, obviously he's not on the ballot, but this is a huge issue. All the polling that I've seen of late, you know, a right. couple months People ago, it, it that. was yeah. low, and right now it's clearly inflation, inflation right? Yeah. And so can they thread the needle by saying, hey, listen, we are battling inflation. This is not our fault. And it really right. isn't. You can it's say really that they, you know, the Federal Reserve was basically a little too overzealous for too long on their easy money policy. But if you think about the geopolitical issues that have actually been a huge input to inflation, if they are able to say, hey, listen, we're getting this under control. Look here, here, and here. And the other thing that's really good is that we've actually avoided seeing unemployment rate go up meaningfully. Right. If anything, it's gone down. It's back at 3.5%, which was a 40-year low, which is what we hit right before the pandemic, before it went up to high single digits or so. So that might be a really good message for them to articulate um, and it's an honest message, to be very frank. It's not one that needs to be spun. So what do you do about MBS, right? Because we're seeing OPEC is going to cut production. That's going to raise oil prices again. I mean, there's clearly a relationship between the Saudis and Jared. I mean, clearly MBS is as much as a person can be, uh, you know, as much as the leader of Saudi Arabia can be a Republican. He sounds like he is. I mean, what should the Biden administration do here? Uh, well, I think they should take a much harder stance. I, I mean, I personally, no one cares what I have to think about geopolitics, no, but I thought that's it was why a, you're here. No, but I thought it was a huge mistake that he went over there, especially given, you know, what we know um, of what he did to just kind of his own people, what he does to his own people and, um, you know, just kind of the humanitarian humanitarian issues that they have over there. But, you know, again, I mean, that, that was just 100 percent leverage. I mean, you we might look back and say that was a bad of a, of a kind of mishap as, you know, Trump going over and meeting Kim Jong-un in, in the DMZ. You know, I mean, I really do think if you think of the balance of power and how important energy has become as a matter of national security, I mean, what happened in the last few months might be something we, you know, we look back for a very long time and just say very clearly, these are not our friends. Right. American government still gives Saudi Arabia money and yet it relies on OPEC. There are things that this government could do. Well, and they're starting to do it. I mean, when you think about, you know, the, this administration started with the idea that they were going to be cutting, you know, fossil fuel production here um, in, in a massive, massive way. And they basically changed their tune. And I think the idea, again, going back to energy as a means of national security, I mean, this is a theme that, you know, Molly and our adult lives, going back to when we were oh, kids, know. you know, this yeah. is something that's gone on and on and on. And so I guess at the end of the day, you know, you keep hearing this term ESG, that was just a kind of really popular way for people to kind of look at what we were doing as it relates to fossil fuels and say, we're not going to invest in those sorts of strategies and just became something a very easy political sort of flag to wave. And I think what this administration has clearly done so far is at least, you know, taken that flag, you know, out of the ground here and thought about different ways where we can produce, um, you know, energy in a way where we're less relying on the Saudi and OPEC. I mean, do you think that that's in the future? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think what the situation that Europe is in right now, I mean, the fact that they were so reliant for natural gas on the Russians, given everything that we know of, of Putin's strategy as it relates to, you know, kind of reassembling or cobbling back together um, the Soviet Union, it's just very interesting that Germany, one of the largest economies 
in the world was so dependent on them. And we're going to be, we could be in a global recession because of that dependence. And, you know, we have the ability here in the U.S. to kind of pull a lot of gas out of the ground here. And again, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about this. And I know the politics are very complicated here. But I mean, there's probably a much more measured approach to this. And then again, you're hearing people from all sides talk about nuclear energy as also a source going forward. So again, I think we're going to get out of this situation here, maybe without a war, a broader war than what just exists with Russia and Ukraine. And it's going to cause the rest of the world to kind of rethink you know, our energy needs. Thank you so much, Dan. This was super interesting. All right, Molly. Thanks a lot. Congrats on Fast Politics. Thanks. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, guys. I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Eric Swalwell represents California's 15th Congressional District. Welcome to Fast Politics, Eric Swalwell. Thanks, guys. Nice to see you all again. Very excited to have you on the new podcast. Talk to me about these midterms. What is your anxiety? What are you seeing? What does the landscape look like from out there in California? Yeah, it's... uh... 30 jump balls all over the country, right? That's basically where we're at. We've got to win about 86% of them to keep the House. That's doable. It's doable because we've got terrific candidates defending our seats, and we've got candidates who are going after you know some of the most vulnerable and just frankly awful Republican colleagues of mine. So I, I actually, you know, if you would have told me a year ago this is the position we would have been in, you know, most people wouldn't have believed it. Uh, and I, I would have been a little skeptical, but uh, that's where we are. You know, 30-ish days out, <clears throat> jump ball scenario, we can keep both houses. What would our listeners need to, I mean, where should they focus? I have been getting lots of emails from people like, what should I do? How can I help? So tell them. Yeah, well, my organization is called uh, Remedy. And so remedypack.com, we've got about 10 seats, uh, two senators that were helping, Mande- two Senate candidates were helping, Mandela Barnes and Val Demings. Uh, and then a bunch of House candidates, a race I really, really enjoy, enjoyed watching it develop, is in Palm Springs. It's a new seat where a 30-year Republican incumbent, Ken Calvert, has moved to, hasn't represented much of it. As you know, it's got the largest LGBT 
concentrated voting base in the country. And even when it had Republicans, they had someone who would vote with their interests. Uh, and now we have Will Rollins as our candidate, a federal prosecutor, prosecuted January 6th cases from the community. He's gay. He knows those issues. And he's running against Ken Calvert, who you know has voted uh, against allowing gays to serve in the military, uh, You know, a co-sponsor of the Defense of Marriage Act uh, back in the 90s, and has made millions of dollars since he went into office. You know, Will, I think, has done a good job of highlighting what he's been called, uh, Calvert's been called, the most corrupt member of Congress. So that is a Trump plus one district, meaning as constituted, Trump would have won it by one point. And that is one that we absolutely uh, can win and put in our column. How is he corrupt? So I will lay this out for you, but he has made nearly 20 plus million dollars while in office, while voting on projects that affected his financial interests. Some of Will's ads, I think, so effectively uh, lay this out. Uh, but also, I, I think if you look at his record of the amount of money he has taken uh, in his campaign from oil and gas industry, from pharmaceutical industry, and then votes against price gouging, uh, you know, when it comes to gas prices, votes against the Inflation Reduction Act, which would lower the cost of prescription drugs, Will really makes a, a great case of whether you know, it's to benefit his campaign or to benefit uh, his pocketbook. Calvert is doing a lot better. His constituents are doing a lot worse. And in about 30 days, there's going to be a choice uh, for the people uh, in that part of California. You've hit on a subject that is near and dear to my heart. A uh, huge percentage of American people believe that members of Congress should not trade stocks or their spouses. Can you talk to me? I know there were like several bills in the works and a lot of controversy. Can you catch us up to where we are on that? Yeah, we should have a stock ban for members of Congress, for our spouses, for our any dependent you know, family members. Um, I don't own any individual stocks and I don't you know, believe my colleagues should. Some of the arguments against having this legislation would be that you know, it's already illegal to insider trade. And so, you know, why does Congress need, you know, a law that would prevent them from doing something that the law already says you can't do? I just happen to believe if the perception among the public is that, you know, we are using inside info to improve our own financial standing, then we should go above and beyond to show the public uh, that we're not doing that. And, and even if it is illegal, why not just make it a little more difficult for a member of Congress to do that. As I said, in the in the Calvert-Rollins race, Rollins has made a compelling case about projects that Calvert has voted on that he has had a direct financial interest in. And Calvert, despite making the same amount of money for the last you know 15 years, as far as his public salary, uh, has seen his overall wealth uh, go up. And, and that diminishes the public's trust in its nation's leaders. And if we can do something about that, I think we should. Yeah, me too, man. <laughs> I get that. It's, it's easy to look at the handful of Democrats that, you know, have opposed this and say, like, why can't you all pass this? No, I know there's nuances in the bills. No, no, it's not the nuances. I mean, I, there's always nuance. But the Republicans are delivering zero votes for us. on this. Right. It's, like, right. It's, it's not as if Kevin McCarthy is saying, hey, guys, I've got 200 votes for you on this. Just no. pass it. No, that's not the case at all. They will deliver, you know, a goose egg as far as like what, you know, we're going to get from them. So and that's the same in the Senate. So we with a plus four majority in the House, you know, we have to get 218 as a point. And, and then it would be nice if some Republicans would vote for us. But we don't have any Republicans saying, hey, just put this vote up and, you know, I'll, I'll give you what you need to get it across the goal line. Certainly not. But here's a question. I mean, the Republicans have gone like anti everything. Why do you think as a Democrat, we're not seeing more Democrats campaigning on this idea that like we have, I mean, I was just writing about this a minute ago, so I can pull this up, but we have, you know, election deniers running in 48 out of 50 states. We have a central tenant of the Republican platform now is that, you know, if our guy doesn't win, the election wasn't fair. I mean, why do you think Democrats aren't running on that more? It's 60% of state and federal candidates on the Republican side are election deniers. And um, I have said from the beginning of the cycle, you know, since January 6th, that, you know, this could be the last free and fair election we see in our democracy's lifetime. Like that, that that's what's at stake when you look at 
the candidates up and down the ballot, the secretaries of state of Nevada and Arizona, the candidates right. on the Republican side, one of them over the weekend said, if I'm elected, I'm going to work with other secretaries of state to make sure that we make fix the sure Democrats never win. Yeah. yeah. And that Donald, yeah. And that Donald Trump's president. I mean, they are, they're telling us what they're going to do. And, and so I think candidates get in this catch 22 position where they think, well, you know, voters aren't talking about this. So let's talk to voters about what they're talking about. But then when it happens, we'll go back and say, why didn't we talk about it enough? I think voters care about what we as leaders tell them they need you know, to care about like that. That's what leadership is, is to show voters, you know, what the issues are that connect all of us and what the solutions are, you know, to, to fix them. It's not to just, um, you know, take a, a straw poll and then whatever the issue of the day is that's popular in the straw poll, you know, reorient your campaign uh, toward that. I, so I, I do believe that, you know, we have seen an increase in the number of people who rank democracy as one of their top issues. It's It's hanging around you know, 10 to 12% in most polls, which puts it at like the third issue, by the way. So you have economy, abortion rights, and democracy is the top three issues. And so I, I think that's because many of us have tried to escalate uh, that, you know, as an issue. And and so um, we have to lean into that. And, and, and to see people say with Mandela Barnes, oh, you know, he needs to stop talking about Ron Johnson's role in January 6th, like that's so maddening. Are people really saying that? Because that is crazy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that that's a that's a hot take out there. Is that Barnes is you know focusing too much on Johnson? Uh, and I think if you if you look at the Barnes campaign, it's very clinical. He's focusing on issues of corruption relating to Johnson, similar to Calvert taking votes that benefits his own financial interests, but also on his role, you know, pre and post January 6th, because that goes to a core issue that we all care about, which is being able to vote and have that vote counted. Right. I think some of it is because when Biden gave that pro-democracy speech, Republicans lost their minds and they compared him to Hitler. Do you think that was one of the reasons like they sort of were able to get Democrats to tamp down? I don't know if it's why Democrats are tamping down, but the public is camping up, right? <laughs> if right. you look at since that speech, democracy as an issue, as I said, stays in you know low double digits as, as far as what people rank as what concerns them the most. And, and by the way, I just think it's so comical that they say, you know, on Monday, stop calling us fascists. And then on Friday, uh, you know, they stand in front of Hitler's car and ask people for money. Like, right. stop calling us fascists. <laughs> it's, it's but I'm just I want to, like, dig into this idea for a second. It does seem like Republicans are better at getting Democrats on the defensive. Right. All of a sudden, Biden is defending a speech he gave where Trump is saying, you know, he doesn't want to do democracy anymore. I mean, do you think like that Democrats should sort of be on the offensive more? Do you think I mean, is this fundamentally a messaging problem? You know, this is something I think about all the time. Yes, we need to play on their side of the field more. And also they are brilliant at inventing issues. Right. Right. We, we joke now it's kind of a a phrase, you know, the, they'll, they'll caravan an issue. And then we're, we find ourselves on, you know, defense. But I actually think, you know, there, there is a way to intercept, you know, their plays, use it against them. And uh, last week, Ilhan Omar and I did just that. You know, we, Ilhan texted me a story about Bakersfield, that it's the fifth highest per capita, like murder capital in the United States, which also happens to be the largest city in Kevin McCarthy's district. And she was like, this is bullshit. Like, we take all these hits from this guy. He represents fifth largest murder capital in America and votes against, you know, every funding bill that we put up for the police. And I was like, yeah, that is bullshit. And so the two of us put together an ad, you know, hitting McCarthy and, and kind of concluded the ad that, you know, you're not pro-cop, you're pro-coup. And that, you know, immediately within 48 hours had over a million views just on Twitter. And so I think that's where you can, you know, intercept, as I said, intercept the pass, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, do a political pick six. Like, and, and that's what we did. And that's what we need to do more. Uh, yeah, that does seem to me like and I mean, for example, like the thing that I'm so struck by is just how good Republicans are at uh, repeating a lie again and again and again. Yes. Going back to the football analogy, they do not want to have us on their end of the field on abortion rights. I mean, they, they're terrified of that as an issue. They're doing anything they can you know, to distract from us, you know, running that issue against them because they know just how devastating it is. And and I've heard, and, and the plural of anecdote is not data, 
but the number of Republican women all over the country uh, who I have heard from, from either directly or family members of theirs saying that they are voting for a Democrat this election because of that issue. Like they know it's devastating and there's, they have no good answer for it. And, and, and I think what's so telling to me on, on that issue, which is why they're so desperate to invent issues and then put us on defense, is all of these rallies that Donald Trump has had. The guy loves, loves, loves to take credit for everything. The one thing he does not take credit for is putting three justices on the court to take away a woman's right to have an abortion. He hasn't said shit about that issue at all because he knows it's unpopular. It's devastating yeah. 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 He's uh, the guy. He's not he's not stupid when it comes to, you know, public opinion. He, he knows how to exploit grievances and he knows that this is a, a major, major issue for women. And he has, for the first time in his life, not taking credit for something that he's responsible for. Yeah. All this stuff about the impeachment coming out most recently. There was another piece. There's a book on the impeachment that just came out from Rachel Bade. Do you think that if it had been done differently, uh, it might have worked? I mean, do you have regrets about the impeachment? Do you wish that they had called witnesses for the second impeachment? What the January 6th commission has done, I, I think, reaffirms the tact we were trying to take as managers, which was to get in front of witnesses. I I get the pressures of the Senate to pass the rescue plan to confirm the president's appointees. What the Bade piece exposes is is that we were ready to go as managers. We had, you know, witnesses who we wanted to call. And, you know, the the Senate, you know, as the jury, they ultimately were going to be able to decide what direction the trial went in. And they didn't go the direction we wanted. Thank God the January 6th commission was created because that information has come out. Do I believe that we would have been able to get you know, the 10 more votes that we would have needed. I don't know. I'd stand by our decision at that point to want to proceed with witnesses. And, you know, it was frustrating that the Senate, you know, wanted to go in a different direction. But I think we've ended up at the same point as far as what we've learned because of the good work of the commission. And I hope that weighs on people in the next, as I said, 30-ish days when they think about what kind of country they want to live in. Eric Swalwell, thank you so much. Donald Trump goes to jail, yes or no? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) yes you're gonna say yes yes okay all right i'll hold you to it andrew warren is a state attorney for hillsborough county florida welcome to fast politics andrew thanks so much for having me you find yourself in an interesting situation that i can't imagine you would have thought you would be in can you explain to us what happened to you on august 4th 2020 yeah it's definitely a situation i never thought i'd find myself in i was at work doing my job i was actually in the grand jury presiding over the indictment of two 39-year-old cold cases that we had solved with the help of local law enforcement. And all of a sudden, I got an email. Tell us what your job is, because uh, not all of our listeners know. Of course. Well, I'm the state attorney in Hillsborough County, Florida, which is where Tampa is. And that's basically, that's the district attorney, as it's called in a lot of other places. So I'm the local elected prosecutor for a jurisdiction of 1.5 million people, We have an office of 300 staff, 130 prosecutors, and we handle about 60 to 70,000 cases a year. Okay, so go on. So tell me about this email. So I I get this email that mentions suspension. I don't really know what it is. I step outside of the grand jury and I walk up to my office and within two minutes, there was an armed deputy from the sheriff's office and someone from the governor's office. They knocked on the door. They handed me what they said was an order of suspension, and I was told I needed to leave the office right away. Did you even know what this was about? I had no idea what it was about. I was completely blindsided. They didn't give me time to read it. I asked if I could have a moment to look at it, if I could understand. They said, nope, you have, there's an order that you need to evacuate the building immediately. You are no longer serving the state attorney. You're hereby suspended. You need to go. And so, I, you know, I've worked with law enforcement throughout my career. I have tremendous respect for them. I know that's not the time to argue when a deputy is telling you you need to do something. I just right. I, I said, okay, I didn't even have time to grab my keys. I just sort of grabbed my bag and was escorted out of the building. Okay, and then what happened? Well, the, the deputy was nice enough to ask me if I needed a ride home because they took my car keys away. 
And I said, no, I'm not going home. Wait, why did they take your car keys away? I have a a state car that I drive to work. And so they told me I'm not allowed to have the car anymore. I mean, they, my house key was on it. Like I didn't even have time to get my house key. That's how, that's how fast this was. And no time to talk with my staff, no time to understand. Again, they didn't even give me time to read the order. I just had to take their word for it that I had been suspended. Okay. So I ended up, you know, everyone asked like, well, what did you do right away? I mean, honestly, the first thing I did is I wanted to make sure that this grand jury was still proceeding right? because I had promised the family members, the two victims who had been murdered back in the early 80s, that I would be there to make sure everything went smoothly and to deliver the news to them that their loved one's killers had finally been indicted and were being held accountable. Jesus. Okay, so what happened next? Well, I spent the day doing that. Um, I ended up making a phone call to my wife. (laughs) I think it was like my third or fourth call. I said, I've been suspended. I've been kicked out of the office. She said, you're kidding. I said, I'm not kidding. I got to go. And you still didn't know why, right? Still didn't know why. Had not seen the order. It turns out they gave me an incomplete copy of the executive order suspending me. I didn't end up looking at it until much later that day. Uh, But this happened at maybe 10, 30, 11 in the morning. And for the next few hours, I was making sure that the grand jury process was going forward. And ultimately, the indictment was returned. I had a chance to meet in person with those victims' families, as I'd promised to do, and to deliver the good news to them. And then we had a press conference scheduled to announce that we had charged these two people and we went forward with the press conference. But you were suspended at this point still. I was suspended. I, I still didn't even know what the basis of the suspension was. I, I mean, I, I really knew nothing. Did you suspect that it had something to do with politics or no? It wasn't until that afternoon where I really had a chance to look at the suspension, the executive order. And the reason why I was suspended was because I had spoken up on abortion rights and for transgender rights. And those are two issues that Ron DeSantis, you know, those are his two of his favorite culture war divisive issues. Right. And he and I don't see eye to eye on those. And so that's the reason why I was suspended. Here's a question for you. You are an elected. You were put in your job by voters. That's right. I was elected twice. I was elected in 2016 and again in 2020. So it's really strange and frankly dangerous the idea that the governor can remove someone from office or, you know, suspend and then hope to remove permanently someone from office who's been elected by the voters. And this is the crazy thing, right? I I have two young children, like my eight-year-old is saying, but but you've been elected, right? That's how democracy works, or at least that's how it's supposed to work. So explain to me, in your district, the state attorney is elected, right? That's right. And has this ever happened where a governor has removed a state attorney for not, you know, going along with his culture war stuff? No. I I think you have to go back like 50, 60, 80 years or something. Desegregating schools or something. Yeah, it was something about like a state attorney refused to, wasn't enforcing like gambling laws during prohibition or something. I I don't know the full history of it. What I do know is that the, the state constitution gives very limited power to the governor to suspend an elected official. And it's really used when someone's committed a crime yeah. or when someone's been incapacitated. Like if, you know, God forbid someone had a stroke and they, they're just not mentally capable of doing the job anymore. So you would say this is really crossing a Rubicon? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm a Democrat. I'm elected as a Democrat in a partisan race. The Ron DeSantis is obviously a Republican, but regardless of what party you belong to or who you vote for, I mean, the sacred trust of our democracy is that your vote matters and no elected official has the right to throw out your vote. So for an elected official of either party to throw out someone because they disagree with how they're doing their job or they disagree with their political philosophy, that's just this full frontal attack on our democracy that should outrage everybody. So now explain to me what you're doing now. I mean, what there probably aren't that many paths for you. They're not. So the way it's supposed to work is if it was a lawful suspension, that is, if the governor was within his power to suspend me, it would go to the Florida Senate and they would decide whether you know to remove me from office based on the facts alleged. But here, the problem is that the governor doesn't have the power to do this. So we filed a lawsuit in federal court, and that case is now set for trial at the end of November. 
basically, we have alleged that the governor violated my First Amendment rights by retaliating against me for speaking out, and more importantly, for violating the rights of the voters to have the elected official that they chose, that they elected in a free and fair election. The governor tried to have the suit thrown out, saying that, you know, I work for him and that he can remove me. And the judge said, not so fast, my friend. Andrew's an elected official. He works for the voters. And now let's go to trial because we want to make sure that the governor's motivation was not political. But we know it was political, right? Well, it it certainly looks political. Our position is that it's political. The judge is doing what judges do. He's waiting to gather all the facts. We had an initial argument in the court a few weeks ago. We had asked to be, I, I had asked to be reinstated before the end of the trial, like an expedited relief saying, hey, judge, we're gonna win on this. And so there's a real harm to me and my constituents. So let's go ahead and put me back until the case gets finished. And the judge said, well, we want to make sure we get this right once and for all. So, you know, as much as I would have liked to have been reinstated at at that preliminary stage, the reality is that going to trial is a victory for the truth because now a federal judge has ruled that DeSantis has to come into court to explain under oath how my suspension didn't break the law. He has to come in under penalty of perjury and show it wasn't political, it didn't violate my First Amendment rights, and it didn't violate the voters' rights to have the state attorney that they elected. A, a lot of Republicans have shopped DeSantis as Trump for people who can't stomach Trump. Uh, it sounds to me, from your experience, that he's almost more dangerous than Trump. Well, he's certainly done some things that have raised eyebrows and, you know, raised questions about the legality of them. Tell me them. Sure. So... <laughs> Well, first of all, the most recent stunt, you know, with sending migrants to Martha's Vineyards, outside observers have pointed out that those flights may have been illegal, that the migrants were duped into it. There was a question of whether he used the state funds that had been authorized legally. Yeah, he put aside $12 million, right? For (laughs) That's right. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind, this is $12 million that could have been spent improving schools or investing in small businesses or fixing the broken insurance market in Florida. I mean, we did recently have a a devastating hurricane here. Uh, But instead, the governor chose to spend that money on a, you know, a political stunt. And and the governor's championed other laws that have been held unconstitutional from cracking down on social media because, you know, he felt like they're biased, which was held to be a violation of First Amendment rights, to, uh, you know, a ban on teaching, you know, true history in American schools and instead having to teach certain propaganda. There, there have been these laws that he's passed, which have come under scrutiny, several of which have been held to be unconstitutional. So this is just one of the more recent actions that the governor has taken, which certainly looks and smells like a political stunt so that he can go on the stump in other states, which is exactly what he's done, you know, brag about how he he threw out this, you know, crazy radical prosecutor. Though anyone in my county, which is a very purple county, will tell you that I'm a pragmatist, that I've been a moderate, that we've done a great job here in actually reducing crime. But unfortunately, in the world in which DeSantis operates, you know, truth doesn't matter very much. You just go out and say what you want to say because you're on Fox News or at a campaign rally where, you know, you're not beholden to the truth. You're in Florida right now and you have that as a sort of, you know, something that the rest of us in the national media don't have. I mean, so you're watching this in real time. Clearly with DeSantis, he like Trump, he doesn't know anything. Right. I mean, (laughs) but DeSantis, like he certainly knows that you can't. I mean, a lot of this stuff, like he's pretty smart. What's happening in Florida? Do you think that this is sort of he thinks he'll get caught eventually or no? It's a great question. I don't think it's so much whether he thinks I don't think he cares. Right. He champions a law. It gets thrown out by the court as unconstitutional, and he still he still goes and brags about it. Right. Look at what we did, right? They passed a law about cracking down on riots that, you know, even law enforcement here said this thing doesn't, this law doesn't do anything. It's just empty rhetoric. And there was a legal challenge filed and the governor's attorneys, you know, go into court and say, judge, this law doesn't really do anything. We admit it doesn't change the law very much. But the but DeSantis goes and talks about it like it's the greatest law in the history of the world, right? So 
Does he care that laws he champions gets held to be unconstitutional? No, because he just goes and brags about passing them anyway. I mean, but it, it leads to a bigger question, which is... So you think most of this is performative? I, it is. It's, it's performance art. I mean, so much of our politics now has become this ridiculous and dangerous political theater. And, and DeSantis has made one thing very clear. I mean, it, don't disagree with him or he'll use his office to punish you. Right. Keep in mind, he went after Disney. Right. Then he went after the Special Olympics. Then he went right. after teachers based on what they're teaching in the classroom. Now he's going after a public servant. He's even targeted law enforcement with regard to the Mar-a-Lago. I mean, so he, he talks so much about the free state of Florida, but the reality is it doesn't feel very free unless you agree with everything he says. Right. How much accountability can there be for a rogue governor like this? Well, it depends what he's doing, right? There's accountability in the fact that you can challenge laws that have been passed as unconstitutional. And that's been done in some of those laws, as I mentioned, have been thrown out. There's accountability when we sue him for this. I mean, we are holding him accountable for violating the constitutional rights of 1.5 million Floridians. And we're confident that we're going to win in court. We have to go through the process, of course. But this is how you hold someone accountable. You don't let them just get away with trampling on people's rights and talk about how they're defending rights. I mean, that's something out of it. It's so Orwellian where he's standing up and saying, freedom, freedom, freedom. We're protecting people's freedom while he's taking away people's freedom of speech, their freedom to vote, their freedom to learn. I mean, he's attacking the freedom of businesses to do what those businesses think is best for their consumers. That There are a lot of freedoms that he talks about, but the words, the actions don't live up to the words. Florida is a fascinating adventure for Democrats. I'm old enough to remember when Florida really was a swing state. What the fuck is happening over there? Excuse my language. Well, I do think Florida is still a swing state. I mean, the Republicans have held power in the statewide elections, you know, in, in the state government here for, you know, a while. And they end up strengthening their grip on it through redistricting and campaign finance laws or the lack of them don't really help and they make matters worse. You know, Florida, like the rest of our country, has become more polarized. And so you have, uh, you know, candidates from both sides moving to the extremes and primaries. But the reality is that even though Republicans keep winning in the state of Florida, the recent elections have been close. You know, DeSantis won in 2018 by like half a percent. And Rick Scott defeated Bill Nelson for the U.S. Senator race by even less than that. And so the races have been close. I think it's important for, you know, Democrats and frankly, any candidate to give voters a vision of how they're going to improve their lives. What what are we going to do to actually help people to improve the economy, to improve our schools, to keep our neighborhoods safe, to help address health care issues? I mean, these are what voters want to know about that. They don't care about the culture war fights and, you know, the the politicking and partisanship you see on cable news. The problem is the parties have just focused so much on these fights and the Republicans have become so good at it that they get people to ignore the kitchen table issues that really matter and instead focus on, you know, the shiny object in the room, the Oh, we're owning the libs by sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard. We suspended the prosecutor. I mean, these are the things that don't help anyone in our state. They undermine democracy. They violate fundamental American values, but yet they appeal to a plurality of people who are voting and determining the course of elections. Do you think that there's problems that Democrats are having at the party level? Well, I think that the party, yeah. In Florida, the local, I mean, can you speak to that for a minute? Yes, I mean, the the party infrastructure here is in need of improvement. I've heard that from a lot of people. And I would love you just to talk to, because our listeners are quite interested in that kind of thing. Well, it's no secret here. You know, the Republicans have done a really good job of organizing, motivating, raising money. And that's what the core of local politics is about, right? I mean, you you show a vision for people, you organize, you get people to turn out to vote. And look, Republicans have been very good about that in the state of Florida. Democrats haven't done it as well. Now they've brought in a new party chair in recent years. They're raising money. They're really focused on uh, core issues. Obviously, women's rights 
uh, healthcare reproductive rights has become a huge issue over the past year. It's something that's turning out voters. And, you know, we hope to see that it turns out people who are, you know, really care about the attack on those freedoms. But as I said a moment ago, you know, candidates and parties have to show a vision for the future and Democrats have to continue to show that they are the party of the people. Or even the party of democracy, right? The the party of democracy, absolutely. But, you know, it's interesting that a minimum wage constitutional amendment passed in the state of Florida in 2020. Raising the minimum wage has been a staple of democratic policy for a generation. And that had to pass by, I believe, 65% of the vote in Florida. And it did. But so while two-thirds of the state are voting for a core democratic policy issue, they voted Republican, you know, and Donald Trump won the state by a couple points. So there's a disconnect between the policies that people support and the parties that they're voting for, which just shows that Democrats have to do a better job of showing that they're the one, they're the party that has supported these policies for years. Yeah, that is very, very true. And it's funny because I think about that all the time, whatever. I was sitting next to someone on the airplane and he was complaining about wokeism. And I said, do you think it's fair that if you get cancer, you could end up in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And he was like, no, of course that's not fair. And I was like, uh. And so, I mean, it certainly is a problem that Democrats find themselves in where they're not able to, you know, let these voters know that that's what they're trying to fight for. Um, Thank you so much, Andrew. This was totally interesting. Molly, thanks so much for having me on. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jung fast. Jesse Cannon. You know, the internet's always confusing, but I feel like it's a little more confusing today. So this is an interesting case, and they've done this before. So the Daily Mail, you may know it as uh, it's a sort of, it's not owned by Rupert Murdoch, but it feels like it could be. <laughs> they released a comment. Can I tell you why I think that, that, that that's not accurate? The Daily Mail works hard, unlike all other Rupert Murdoch's other properties. No one puts out more content than them. The Daily Mail certainly does put out a lot of content. So they have recently released a 2018 voicemail. Now, by the way, I just want to point out, this is would not be the first time that a British newspaper has gotten in trouble for phone hacking. Pierce Morgan! Right. While you're listening to this voicemail, perhaps you would like to think about the other times in which, for example, Rupert Murdoch got in trouble for hacking. I'm not saying this is hacked. I'm sure that Joe Biden just sent them a uh, voicemail of something he left to his son, Hunter. But I'm just saying, like, this is not the first time the Brits have had trouble with this. I'm going to read you the text of it. It's dad. I called to tell you I love you. I love you more than the whole world, pal. You got to get some help. I don't know what to do. I know you don't either. So uh, this is meant to be a dunk on Joe Biden for loving his son? I don't know. I mean, again, like, okay. I mean, yeah, that's terrible. No one, I don't want a president who loves his son. <laughs> you know, you know, when they've accused us of having Trump deranged syndrome, would you think this is something to attack? You're really showing your whole ass. It's so interesting because it's like the Republicans are so good at messaging, right? They have a whole <laughs> group of people who think that their Republicans are going to do great things for them, despite all evidence to the contrary. And yet somehow they don't understand that loving your drug addicted child is not something that people consider to be a bad quality in a presidential <laughs> candidate. Anyway, so they get a hearty fuck you, fucking fuckery of fuckism. And I hope that they all get in trouble for this because if they're hacking voicemail, which again, we don't know what they're doing here. I'm not even going to, we don't know, but whatever it is, like however they got this, you know, not great. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. 
Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.